0: If you would grab a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is where we'll be centering our thoughts for this part of our worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, good to see that we have visitors with us. We always want you to feel welcome. We're glad that you're here. We want you to know that we're excited that you're here. If there's anything we can do to help you to be right with God or any way that we can be of service to you, please let us know about that. So good to see Brother Ricky with us today. I know that his has been a long struggle, and we've been praying for you, brother, and we're just so happy to see that you're able to get out and be with us this morning. Uh, that's just a, it does our hearts good to see you. Uh, I want to, uh, before I get started, remind the high schoolers and junior high that uh, we're having a Devo at our house tonight at 5 o'clock. I keep trying to remind everybody. We're getting back in the swing of that after the uh, summer. We took a break for the summer, uh, but 5 o'clock, meet at our house Uh, for the high school and junior high tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. Text says, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The idea of the judgment seat was common in the ancient world. It was a throne or a chair on which a judge would sit and pronounce judgment. In the Roman world, many crimes, murder and adultery, several others, were tried by juries. But most of the crimes, the majority of the crimes, were tried by a single magistrate. And what he would do, what he would be to sit in a large structure that would have a throne or a chair in it called the judgment seat. Sometimes it appears that they might have even been portable where the seat could be brought out and the man could come and sit and declare judgment. So you have several examples of judgment seats that come up in the New Testament record. Pilate sits in the judgment seat to decide what to do with Jesus. You have Herod who sits in the judgment seat and gives a speech and then God strikes him and he's eaten by worms and dies. You have this judgment seat that Paul goes before of Festus. And there Paul says, I appeal to the judgment seat of Caesar. I want to go before Caesar. But a judgment seat then is a place where crimes are read off. Sentences are declared. Fates are decided. Now the process of a trial has a long history with deep roots in the Old Testament. A trial is a time when everything is calm and dispassionate after whatever crime the accused is accused of has long been in the past we can sit and calmly read from the law and present evidence and talk about the facts and then a judge will decide something. So why do I bring all that up? Because that is the background of verse 10. Verse 10 of our text says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we may not be as familiar with that idea of a judgment seat, but we do know what happens in a courtroom. We do know what a judge's bench looks like. And he is saying, we will all appear in the courtroom of Christ. We will all be before his bench. He will make a decision about each one of our lives. So, I just want us to take a few minutes to think about what it's going to be like when we sit before the judgment seat of Christ and how you and I can prepare for that time. Now, I want us to begin by setting our feet in this text This text in 2 Corinthians is at really the culmination of a long section which Paul is describing how hard he has had it. He talks about how he had an affliction in chapter 1 and he despaired even of life. He talks about how that must have been both an opposition that that hurt him physically and also a rejection that hurt him emotionally. And he talks about that in chapter 2. And yet throughout chapters 4 and 5 he has the mentality that says don't worry, just because things are hard doesn't mean I'm giving up. Look in chapter 4 and verse 1. In chapter 4 and verse 1 he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have the ministry of the Spirit, not the old ministry of the letter that had to do with the law. He says, we have a more glorious ministry, so I'm not giving up. He says a little later... In verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given to despair. So he says, I'm not going to give up just because things are hard and I'm suffering physically and perhaps even emotionally. Verse 16, he says, chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul is saying, even if I die, what's going to happen? I'm going to get a better body. The outer man may be being abused, may be being defeated, may be perishing, but the inner man is growing stronger. And someday I'm going to exchange this outer body, what he calls a tent, for a house not made with hands. A better body, a better kind of life. And so in chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, so we are always of good courage. Again, he says that we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. He talks about how we groan right now because we're in a body and we're kind of stuck in this body. We want a better body. We want a better life. One that doesn't die. One that doesn't suffer. And yet he says, someday I'm going to be away from this body and at home with the Lord in a better body. But wherever I am, here or there. I make it my aim to please Him. Whether I have to wait and groan for a little while longer, I am going to work to please the Lord. Why? Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is a fact, he says, that influences our view of our past and our present and our future. The fact that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul knows that that thought of appearing before the judgment seat produces fear. Some versions say terror. It produces fear in Paul and Paul knows it produces fear in others. And so he says that is a motivator to the work that I do. I'm not giving up because someday I'm going to answer to Jesus and I want to be ready for that day. So let's think about that. First of all, Paul says, we will all appear. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear. Paul includes himself. Paul includes the other apostles in that we. He is saying we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But all people are included in that. The world will be judged. God's people, those who are not God's people, and there is no partiality in that. We're not going to turn to all these passages. I'm going to put them on the board. If you're taking notes, it would be good to jot down so that you can have a record of everything that we've talked about. But I just want to show you how universal this judgment is described to be in the New Testament. This is Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. He's making a point about how Jesus only has to die once. But he says it's like us. We die once, and after that comes judgment. Ecclesiastes 12:14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Acts 17, and verse 30, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Sometimes that universality that will all appear is described as God judging the living and the dead. This is 1 Peter 4, 5. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In Acts ten forty two. he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. It is so universal that even the dead will be there. So it does not matter if... That time comes before we die or after we die. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is an appointment we will all keep. It is not an appointment where you can be excused. I had jury duty this summer. And they said, just send us your excuse and we'll tell you if you get to be excused. And so... I really only had one time where I was going to be gone on vacation. They excused me for my vacation. No excuses for not appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. There's not going to be anyone who's left out. There's no one who says, well, I guess they didn't make it. No one's so important that they don't have to show up. And no one's so unimportant that they'll be overlooked. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in Romans 14... We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the question is, how do we feel knowing that we must appear before the court and face charges? Particularly, it's a disquieting prospect to know That we will go before the judge knowing that we are guilty of the crimes of which we are accused. How does that make you feel? I don't know about you. But just going into the courtroom makes me a little nervous. Even when I'm not accused of anything. To know that we will appear before the judgment seat and we know what the verdict will be is a sobering thing. But I want to remind you that this fact that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, just in the way Paul says it, is a fact that is the only fact that gives real meaning to our lives now. One of the most exasperating and infuriating things about the life that we live is that we see people do wrong things all the time, and nobody punishes them. Things that we all agree are wrong. They're terrible things. And yet, only some of them ever suffer as a result of what they do. And we know that's unfair, and we know that's not right, and we are all grieved by it, but we are powerless to do anything about that. This is the fact that says, yes, there will be a day when judgment will come on evil deeds. And so, that's going to cut both ways. On the one hand, we would say, if there is no judgment, evil can just go on unchecked forever. Why bother being good if that's the case? What good is being good doing if there is no judgment? If no one is ever going to enforce the rules? Why should we do what's right? If you say, well, because it's right, well, who cares what's right if no one is ever going to be rewarded or punished based on their deeds? But it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because if judgment is coming on evil, then I have to say, I know I have been evil. I have done wrong things. I am not innocent. This is a fact that gives meaning to life... ...but it is also a fact that is challenging and sobering for me personally. The second thing Paul says is that we will all be judged for our actions. Look again at verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ... ...so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body... ...whether good or evil. I want to focus on that phrase, what he has done in the body. Paul has been talking all through this section about the body. How his body has been suffering how his body is wasting away, how he hopes for a new body. And yet here he says, we will give an account for the things we have done in our body. His point is, how we live now will matter later. That's his point. Now that may seem really simplistic, really obvious to us. But we need to know that was a problem in Corinth. That for some reason, people in Corinth were led to believe that the things they did in their body didn't really affect their spirit. That it didn't really matter. I want you to leave your marker here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I want to show you why I say that about it being a problem in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. Paul writes, "...all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything." 1 Corinthians 6, 13, "...food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body." Now, let me just comment on those two verses. It appears to me that the Corinthians are saying, "...all things are lawful." The Corinthians are saying, "...food for the body, and the body for food." God will destroy both. Paul is saying, well, you may say all things are lawful, but not everything's helpful, and some things are addictive, and so there are some things that are beyond just what's lawful. But in verse 13, he says, the body is not for sexual immorality. That's not God's purpose for the body. And I want you to notice, we're going to read the rest of this chapter now. And as we do, I want you to notice how many times Paul talks about the body. Look at verse 14. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It matters what we do in the body. That's Paul's point. It matters how we live and how we use the body God has given us. God will raise the body. Our bodies are members of Christ. We become one body with those that we engage in sex with. He says there is a sin against your own body. Then he says glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Your body belongs to Jesus. Use it for him. Well, you might think, well, that's all well and good, but that's not the way people think today. We don't think today that the things we do in the body don't affect the spirit. Have you ever had someone say... Something like this. You know, I know I I may do this or that, but God knows my heart. God knows what I'm really about. Do you know what that is? That is the same mentality as existed in Corinth that says my actions don't matter to my spirit. And the scriptures teach unequivocally what matters is what we do in the body. How we use this body. For good or for evil. We just have a tendency to believe that our actions don't matter. We have a tendency to think that, well, I'm not that important. I'm not on God's most wanted list after all. So if I do a couple of things here and there, God's just going to overlook those. It won't be a big deal for God. And then we have a tendency to think that when we do evil things, that they're just going to sort of disappear. You know, they'll get washed under by time. And if enough time passes and it wasn't that big a deal to begin with... ...you know, God will just kind of forget about those things. Paul is saying our actions do matter. In fact, he is saying our actions are eternal. And that God does not forget. That's the point of judgment. God never forgets. And that we will answer for the things done in the body. In fact... Scripture paints judgment as far more sweeping than we often want to think about. Because it is not just the things done in the body that we'll give an account for. This is 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Paul writes, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The purposes of the heart The things now hidden in darkness. This is Luke 12, verses 2 and 3. You know, I like to underline the parts I'm really trying to emphasize. I couldn't underline any part of this because I want to emphasize all of it. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. There are no secrets with God. There are no things you can argue away no things you can hide in the deep corners of your heart and think God won't hear them or see them. Nothing that you whisper and think that God doesn't hear. Jesus says every word that we speak, every idle word, we'll give an account of in the day of judgment. Hebrews 4 and verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. To think of being naked and exposed. And the word that's used here means to have the head thrown back and the neck exposed. Are you uncomfortable yet? To think of your life. Broadcast in that way. Our skeletons, our, our secret thoughts, our motives, laid bare. No excuses, no hiding. It changes our behavior when we know that we're going to be called to account for what we do. That someone is going to be there to say, why did you do that? What were you thinking? Why did you act this way? What do you have to say for yourself? It is one thing to... To answer for a few of the deeds of our life. But to answer for all of it is a scary proposition. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5. The third thing I want to show you from this text is that we will receive what is due. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This part of the verse speaks to sentencing. We'll be evaluated based on how we have lived, what we have done, and we will be sentenced accordingly. Now, the text literally says we will receive the things done in the body. The New American Standard says we will be recompensed for the things done in the body. The question is, what do we deserve for what we have done? Now, judgment in the New Testament is not pictured as a credit-debit system. You know the idea that, well, we've got some, we got some drafts, we've got some sins over here, but you know what, we got some good deeds over here, so we'll just kind of weigh them out and see which weighs more. That is not the way judgment is pictured. Judgment is not pictured as Jesus saying, well, you did some bad things and some good things, but a few more good than bad, so come on in. Instead, it is colored by this image. That when we sin, we deserve death. This is Romans 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have a different system than the balancing of the scales. That's not the image here. It is instead when we sin, we deserve something. We have earned it. We have wages and they are coming to us. The wages of sin is death. It's a little like a judge sentencing someone. The judge will take all the information and try to make a judgment, but his main job is to see, did this person break the law? And if they broke the law, what penalty do they deserve? Here is the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Judgment is the time in which the sentencing occurs. So the point I'm driving at, Is that if I am asked to give an account of the things I have done. I know what I deserve. There is no excuse. There is no defense. I cannot make some kind of plea deal. I deserve death. And absent some intervening force. I will receive death. That is the reason why judgment discussion is so scary. It's the reason Paul says knowing the terror of the Lord We persuade men. It is the reason why Felix, when he hears Paul preach about righteousness and the judgment to come, self-control and the judgment to come, it says Felix was afraid or alarmed, and he said, come back some other time. It's scary. We don't like to think about it because we know what is due. But there is more to the story for us. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The only hope that we have in light of the facts we have examined is because Jesus changes the picture. Because of Jesus, Christians have hope that they will not receive what is due on the day of judgment. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want you to see the picture changes when we submit ourselves to God through Jesus. The picture changes because in verse 33 he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God. Who justifies. So God brings no charge against us in this verse. Because God is instead of charging us, justifying us. We are his chosen ones, his elect. And so God justifies us. He declares us righteous when we deserve death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, Christ does not condemn. Christ, pictured in his role as judge in the judgment seat, does not condemn us. Instead, he died for us and he is interceding for us. He is for us, who can be against us. The picture changes because we are on great terms with the judge. That's why the picture changes. On that day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not want justice. As much as we yearn for justice and we think we want it, we do not want justice for ourselves. We want mercy. We want the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that is the reason why throughout the book of Romans, Paul, looking forward to the time of judgment, talks about how God counts our faith ...as righteousness, how God justifies the ungodly... ...because he is looking forward to a time when God will no longer condemn. Romans 8 and 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is looking forward to the judgment... ...and how we can avoid receiving what is due for what we have done in the body. There is another picture of this in Revelation chapter 20... ...that shows a similar uh, motif here. I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So here you have that same idea, judged by what we've done in the body. But there is this complicating factor of the book of life. A different book. And it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, salvation there. It's not pictured in Revelation or anywhere else as you passing the judgment with flying colors. Hey, you did great, you did good enough, you get to go in. Instead, it is pictured as there has to be an intervention from God, a book of life, a free gift, mercy from the judge. And that, of course, is about how Jesus saves us by his blood. But you know, all of that raises a question, which is, If Jesus is going to intercede for us, if the judge is on good terms with us, then why is the judgment brought up repeatedly as a motivator for Christians? Just like Paul does in our text, where he says we're trying to please him because we must appear. Well, Paul, if you know you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everything's going to be fine, how would that motivate you? I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, I think there is an answer to that question here. Romans 2 and verse 6. Romans 2 and verse 6. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing... ...seek for glory and honor and immortality... ...he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... ...and do not obey the truth... ...but obey unrighteousness... ...there will be wrath and fury... ...there will be tribulation and distress... ...for every human being who does evil... ...the Jew first and also the Greek... ...but glory and honor and peace... ...for everyone who does good... ...the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. I believe that the idea here, as Paul talks about how are we seeking glory, honor, and immortality, are we disobeying and seeking unrighteousness? I believe that the idea he is communicating is the only way we can know what we really believe and what we are really seeking is by evaluating our actions. The only way you know if someone is seeking glory, honor, and immortality, is if they live as if they are seeking glory, honor, and immortality, what they do in the body. Or as Jesus said, much more simply, by their fruits you shall know them. And so judgment then becomes about determining the heart by evaluating the actions. Jesus will call us to account for our works because our works reveal our hearts. Now it appears to me that if we are really seeking in Jesus somebody to just cover the tab of our sin and then, you know, we can just kind of go our own way and live how we want, then we're falling into the same danger Paul is warning against. Paul is warning against us living as if the judgment doesn't matter. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, he says, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul says, this is my motivation to keep Jesus first, to not lose heart, to always please him. Paul says, I know even now that I'm going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for my actions and that matters to me. He says it this way, 1 Corinthians 9, and I I believe this is always in the back of Paul's mind as he thinks about what's to come in the life to come. He says, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body. Notice things done in the body. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Always in the back of Paul's mind is the possibility that when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, somehow I have lost what I tried so hard to get. And he says, I don't want that to happen to me. I am motivated by the fact that someday I will receive what is due. And even now, it's possible to live in such a way that I fall away from Jesus and I will answer for it on the last day. So Paul is motivated and he says, I make it my aim, whether here or there to always please him. He says a little later, somewhat like the song we sang earlier today, that I will live for him who died for me. We'll all appear. We'll all be judged for our actions. We'll all receive what is due. It was interesting to me as I prepared this sermon this week. The social media world was melting down in its typical way. There were all these questions that were circulating, at least among the people that I look at sometimes. Race and politics, culture, gender... I have my opinions about all of those things. Some of my opinions are biblically informed. Some of them are just my opinions. But you know, when I I look at all of those questions and all of those issues and the the difficulties facing our nation, the the overwhelming feeling I have is I can't solve this. It's too big for me. And that can be distressing. There is a way of life that we enjoy in this country that cannot be guaranteed. Guaranteed. And there are things that I see and and through my sight concern me. And I can talk to my children about those things. I can talk about them in my little corner of the world. I can use the the platform that I have to try to give biblical wisdom into that. But, But the overwhelming feeling I have is that I can't solve that. I can't fix it. I think I have some good ideas, but nobody's listening. But you know this? This hits a lot closer to home. Thinking about how I speak. Thinking about the choices that I make on a daily basis. That I'm going to answer for my life. Those are not things that are above my pay grade, those are things we all must wrestle with. How have I lived? Have I done what's right? How have I used my body? How have I used my words? How have I used my money? How have I used my opportunities? How have I used my time? How have I used my relationships? How have I used my mind? How have I used my Bible? We will answer for these things. So I invite you, if there is something that in light of that you believe you need to change something that you need to confess and forsake to be right with God, or if you need to begin a relationship with Jesus so that you have hope in that time that you will not have to answer for your actions, but instead be cloaked in the blood of Jesus. If there is any need you have to make your life right with God, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.